This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is writer, teacher, and editor Hannah Tinty. Her best-selling novel, The Good Thief, was a New York Times notable book of the year, and her short story collection, Animal Crackers, was a runner-up for the Penn Hemingway Award. Tinty has worked in bookstores, magazines, publishing houses, and literary agencies. She co-founded the award-winning magazine One Story. We began our conversation talking about her switch from a biology major to creative writing in college, the different parts of her brain those subjects engaged, and why she changed her major. Well, the funny thing is, is I was a person with a creative mind shoehorning myself into a science world, I think. And the reason for that is because for me, science was always the most interesting class that I was taking. I, I was so interested in the world of biology and physics and I just felt that's where I wanted to go. And in my mind, when I was a high schooler, I had a dream of being like a female Jacques Cousteau. I wanted to be out in a boat, like communicating with whales. That seemed like a great way to live my life. And once I got to college and started taking lots of science classes, I realized that, you know, I that was not where my talents (laughs) were, you know, I, I, I would study and study and study and study and study. And I would get like a B minus. And then friends of mine who barely studied at all would get like an A. And, you know, it was it was a learning process to understand that, you know, it's not just a question of what you think you want to do, but actually recognizing where your innate talents are. And what happened for me was I signed up sort of on a whim to take a creative writing class. And that was the first time I'd actually read work by writers who were still alive. <laughs> um, all my other courses for English literature, well, I, again, I could always get an A and barely study. I, I was a very verbal kid. My parents um, raised me on books. My mother was a librarian. That was just, that was what was easy for me. And then taking this writing class, which was with the author Blanche Boyd, just changed everything for me. And it made writing exciting. And this very alive, living, breathing world, the literary community, I had no concept that that even existed. And I realized pretty quickly that what I could do is take the stories of science and the ideas of science, which were the things that got me excited, and actually combine them with writing and literature, which is where my talents were. You worked at a bookstore after college. What did you learn from being there that you carry with you today? How books sell and word of mouth, how much word of mouth is important, how much the New York Times book review matters. Um, getting a review there, that's the one, still one place where readers, if they read, they tend to subscribe and look at that every week. The other thing I learned was all about remainders and books not selling. Each of the bookstores has to very strategically, you know, they're pre-buying these books that then they're hopefully going to buy. And if they don't buy them, the books get sent back and then they get a credit. 
So it's this constant back and forth of books. So mostly what I was doing was shipping books back and forth, unpacking books that were coming in, putting them on the shelves, seeing what sold, what didn't, repacking those books and shipping them back. And uh, the terrifying thing I remember learning was about um, any mass markets and some trades, but mostly mass market books. Uh, It actually is not worth the money to ship them back. So that, what you do, you have to tear the covers off and you ship the covers back to the publisher. So it's this weird thing where actually my job at the end of each day was to sit in the back room and tear apart books, which just hurt me. Like in my soul, I remember. And I, what I would do is I would save them and I'd tape them back together and I would take those books and read them, actually, and hand them out to my friends because you aren't allowed to sell them again. Um, it's illegal. So... Um, but I'm, And then you just mail off all those poor little torn covers, <laughs> all oh. these books. It was a tragic learning experience as a young, you know, 20-something-year-old learning like, oh, this is how the book business, this is a business. I know you were like an undertaker. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So learning that side and then learning the dark side of the slush pile once I started working for magazines and literary agencies was another, you know, dark side learning experience. And what was that about? Well... Uh, I always describe it to my students like this. Um, when I worked at the Boston Review, we were actually um, we the the offices now are at MIT and are very nice. But back in the old days, they actually were in the back of um, like a sweatshop in Chinatown. We had to like lock ourselves slowly into the back rooms of where this was, and literally like there was this back room, and it was like. Err! like opening up the door and I went back there and again this was back when there was physical manuscripts now everything's done digitally but there was a room and it was literally the pile was as high as the ceiling he, you know thousands of manuscripts manila envelopes and it was like your job is to read all those and go through them and when I was at the Atlantic Monthly uh, we would get I think three or four mailbags a day we would get several hundred manuscripts a day and Michael Curtis his his um you know, his rule was that anything that came in that day had to go out that day. So we had to stay there and read everything until it was done. Like from beginning to end? No, you never do. I mean, it's a skill that you slowly learn. I've been reading the slush pile since, you know, for many, many years, you know, 15, 20, 20 years pretty much now. Um, And, you know, when you first start, you do read the whole thing. And then you start to learn actually what how how to read slush and get through something very very quickly but what it did teach me was what not to do it showed me how to craft my own writing by viewing the negatives actually understanding why manuscripts get put down can you explain what that is Uh, You know, how important it is for the first page to really be the first page. And oftentimes writers are clearing their throat for several pages um, before they actually, before the story that they're telling actually begins. Um, The other thing is sloppiness, uh, a command of the language and and skill level being represented right away in the first paragraph. And a lot of times I could tell, even if the story wasn't quite getting going yet, if the language was at a certain level, I would continue to read because I knew that this writer had skills and would hopefully eventually take me somewhere, although sometimes that was not the case either. They were just a very good writer, but they didn't know how to tell a story. And professionalism, something being presented in an extremely professional way, treating that submission process like a business instead of like, we would get stuff on like 
scented paper. We would get, you know, people would sometimes slip money into the envelopes thinking that would somehow get them uh, pushed forward. Um, People would include photographs of themselves, um, just stuff that was out there. And it showed me how important it was to learn how to write a very good, concise, clear cover letter, how to present yourself in a certain way. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is writer, editor, and teacher Hannah Tinty. Her novel is called The Good Thief. Your novel, The Good Thief, is about an orphan named Wren who is missing his left hand. He's in an orphanage in Massachusetts in the 1800s. And a man comes along claiming to be his brother, but it turns out he may not be. But he takes Wren, and Wren gets caught up with this man's gang, who are a bunch of grave robbers and scam artists. And along the way, Wren finds clues to who his parents really are. Tell me about the genesis for this story. For The Good Thief, the genesis began when I was reading a book called Forgotten English by Jeffrey Kasich. And it's a, I've always been fascinated with the etymology of words. And one of the phrases in this collection was Resurrection Men. So the book's about words that have fallen out of use in the English language. And Resurrection Men, I I, I was like, that's a beautiful, wow, that's so beautiful. Resurrection Men, Resurrection Men. Of course, being raised Catholic, that was a, you know, it was, it struck me as beautiful. And then I read the definition and was completely horrified because these were men who would dig up bodies and sell them to medical schools and sometimes murder people for this exact purpose because it became so lucrative. And I just became fascinated with the idea of this and the moral ambiguity of the whole thing because doctors needed corpses to practice on. And this is all before, you know, now there's all kinds of things about people donating their bodies to science and rules about this kind of thing. But uh, this is when medical schools were first getting a foothold in Europe and in America. So while these resurrection men, what they were doing was the worst thing imaginable, ultimately this bad deed led to a greater good and saved lives. So that just became very interesting to me. And I was like, well, let me just try to write a scene. I didn't know it was going to be a novel. I thought maybe a story. And I wrote a – I was like, well, what do I need? It was, a, it was the question. It was going back to the – scientific method, I suppose. Um, well, what would a resurrection man need? They'd need a horse and carriage for the bodies. Um, they'd need shovels. It would, the setting's going to be a cemetery, and they'd probably need a lookout. And I decided that lookout would be a young boy, and I just started writing this scene of these guys digging up these bodies, and I was physically trying to describe the boy. I had him holding onto the reins of a horse with his right hand. And I kept trying to say what he was doing with his left hand. He was scratching his chin. He had his hand in his pocket. And I, nothing felt right. You know, there's a strange sort of this is where the subconscious comes to play, where it's like you write a sentence and it doesn't feel right. And you write a sentence and it doesn't feel right. And you keep trying things. And then I suddenly had this flash of inspiration that the reason why I couldn't figure out what this kid was doing with his left hand is because he didn't have a left hand. So I was like, oh, well, he doesn't have one. And then suddenly he opened up for me as this character. And I realized this was going to be a story about this kid. And who is he? How did he lose this hand? How did he fall in with these grave robbers, which is a very dangerous thing? He, and that, again, starts to 
you ask yourself the questions. He must be an orphan. He doesn't have parents because a parent hopefully would have tried to shield him and, and not do something like this to this kid. And he has a history because this hand is missing. What happened? And then I started building the story from there. And so that chapter is actually chapter 15 in the novel that's the center of the book. And I wrote that chapter, the one right after it. And then I went back to the beginning and said, well, how did he kid, kid get here? And I went back and wrote the beginning of the book. And then I jumped and wrote the end. So I sort of wrote it backwards in a way. But that tends to be how my mind works, almost like an octopus going in, in several different directions at once. There is a lot of violence in this book. Is that Was that hard to write? Not really. Um, pretty much all my stuff is on the violent side, on the darker side. And... When people meet me, they often say, you seem so nice. Like, why do you write this weird, dark, violent stuff? I, I always tell them, I start by telling them I grew up in Salem, Massachusetts, where it's Halloween 365 days a year. And so that was always just part of my regular life, that sort of dark, twisted, spooky stuff. And it is definitely a theme that I'm interested in, This 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 line of, what makes one person cross this line into into a violent place and another person decide not to. There's like this, because I, I do think that given certain conditions, people can be driven to do anything. And what are those conditions? What are those things that, that, that do drive people to murder someone, you know, or beat someone and other people not to go to that more animalistic place? So Ren, the main character, the orphan, was raised in a Catholic orphanage, so he's had a lot of religion in his life. And there's also a lot of violence in his life. And I'm wondering if you think there's anything about violence that brings someone closer to God. That's a very interesting question. Um, if I was Flannery O'Connor, I think I would say yes, uh, <laughs> uh, who's definitely sort of one of my influences. You know, I think people stumble into violence when they are feeling emotions so intensely, you know, and they and they literally flip a switch into um, I keep going back to animalistic side, but it is like that. Um, I have a dog who's a rescue and I'll never forget the first day I had her in the dog run and she was always just such a pleasant, wonderful dog. And I had brought her to the dog run for for a long time. And then she reached a certain age, I think about one year, and then suddenly she flipped a switch and one day she, instead of always when dogs, other dogs would come around and sort of push her around, she would always take it. And then one day she just flipped a switch and she just became, she tacked. And after that, I had to be really careful about her because I could, I'd see it once the switch happened, I couldn't switch her back. After, you know, I'd pull her out and pull her off the other dogs and, you know, apologize or have to pay out money, vet bills to other dogs sometimes. Um, and, you know, and pull her aside and talk to her, you know, sort of or like or do different things. I, I, you know, I brought her to different dog trainers trying to get this aggressive side out of her and um, and nothing ever quite did it. So I just have to be very careful about not seeing I can now watching her very closely. I can see the point where she's about to turn. And I just pull her out of the situation. I get her leashed and out of there as quickly as possible and um, before she switches to attack mode. And I think that's what happens with people. It's like she didn't even understand, like, what she had just done. And I think I see, I see that, you know, with friends or, you know, people, people that I've seen go to that place or, or, or people that have met or interviewed go to that place. It's always a similar sort of situation where they just get pushed to this limit and they, 
they switch. You're listening to First Draft on Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. My guest is writer, editor, and teacher Hannah Tinty. So tell me a little bit about one story and starting that magazine and sort of what you get out of it as the editor. One Story is a literary magazine that I co-founded in 2002 with Mary Beth Bacha. The idea behind it is to look at short stories as individual works of art. And when we began in 2002, there wasn't anybody that was doing this. Um, And now there's more because of digitally you can get sort of a story a day emailed to you and stuff like that. But this is a different kind of idea. And mostly because short stories are are so fantastic, particularly when read alone. And you can just sort of have an entire artistic experience in about 10 or 15 minutes. Um, you know, you can't watch a play, you know, <laughs> unless it's a very, very short play in that, that short period of time or, or see a movie or, or even sometimes listen to a piece of music, maybe. So that's maybe the closest to that. But um, Mary Beth and I, you know, felt strongly um, about trying to create a place where the short story would sort of be given its due. And at the time, it was right after Story Magazine had folded, which had launched the careers of so many great writers like Juno Diaz and Edwidge Danticat and Nathan Englander. Um, They all were published first in Story Magazine. And then it folded. And it seemed like all of the magazines that were in between the glossies, which would be the New Yorker or Harper's and the university literary magazines, which come out maybe once a year and have a very small circulation of maybe 200, 300 people. There was, like, there was the, the magazines that were in between there were dying out. We wanted to try to fill that void. So we started looking at literary magazines and all the ways and reasons why they fail. Some of those are um, they didn't really have a relationship with their subscribers. And that means that you have to come out more frequently. So we came up with this idea of a magazine coming out every three to four weeks. And two weeks was too soon. A month was too much. It was like we needed something in between. I just sent to the press today our issue 196, and we published 196 different writers. So the other thing we found with other magazines is they sort of became a click, and they just published the same authors again and again. And while sometimes that's kind of a really cool thing that can happen because it can kind of create this school of thought, um, our feeling was there's so many great amazing voices out there. And we don't want to fall into that pattern. We want to just keep opening the doors. So we started in 2002. And now we're actually one of the largest literary magazines in the country. As far as circulation wise, we have 15,000 readers uh, reading each story. And it's, it's, it's really been a, a labor of love. It gives me a different kind of satisfaction. I do think that as a writer or as a literary citizen, If you want to take from the pool, if you're hoping to get published, if you're hoping to find readers, you have to find a way to give back to the pool, whatever that might be. Volunteering at a literary organization, um, reading at a literary magazine, um, you know, finding a way to kind of foster the community and keep it going. So you're not just there draining and sucking and trying to take what do you want, what do you want to get from something, but actually giving back because that's the only way a community can thrive. And nobody is in this the literary community for the money. We're not here for the money. We're here to learn about the world and each other and hopefully teach as well and uh, share our experiences and make each other feel not so alone. 
Can you read a passage from a writer that speaks to you or influences you as a writer? I chose Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury. And the reason why I chose this book is because this was the first book that I found on my own as a reader. I I can't even remember where I found it, but I do remember that sense of it was the first book that hadn't been given to me or assigned or pushed on me by a friend. Uh, You know, I was going through a bookcase and saw it and was intrigued by the cover and literally opened it up and just started reading. And I whizzed through it. It opened up a whole new world for me and I was so exciting and I I remember in particular the section that I thought I would read from there is a mechanical hound in the story and um, the book takes place in a sort of dystopian future where now firemen actually burn houses down instead of putting fires out and their main job is to go around and root out books and to destroy books anywhere that they exist and this mechanical hound, he's sort of like a Dalmatian, you know, in the firehouse, um, but he's, he's a computer that has been created um, to track down and kill readers. And this is the first time he appears in the book. And I should say the main character's name is Montag. The mechanical hound slept but did not sleep, lived but did not live, in its gently humming, gently vibrating, softly illuminated kennel, back in a dark corner of the firehouse. The dim light of one in the morning, the moonlight from the open sky, framed through the great window, touched here and there on the brass and the copper and the steel of the faintly trembling beast. Light flickered on bits of ruby glass and on sensitive capillary hairs in the nylon-brushed nostrils of the creature that quivered gently, 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 its eight legs spidered under it on rubber-padded paws. Montag slid down the brass pole. He went out to look at the city and the clouds had cleared away completely and he lit a cigarette and came back to bend down and look at the hound. It was like a great bee come home from some field where the honey is full of poison wildness, of insanity and nightmare, its body crammed with that over-rich nectar, and now it was sleeping the evil out of itself. Do you want to say anything else about it? Just that I became so obsessed as a child. I mean, I, I was probably maybe 10 or 11 when I read this. And I didn't understand. I didn't see the beauty of the language that he's doing here in this moment. But I was obsessed with the mechanical hound. And I remember drawing pictures of it over and over, trying to take these these images of it, which is so terrifying because it ends up tracking Montag down at the end of the book um, and trying. I couldn't get the image out of my head. I think that's a great book that scares you enough or moves you enough that this imaginary thing becomes so real. And how about something that you wrote, something that you feel you succeeded at or something that changed? Um, Can you share something? All right. I'm going to read from The Good Thief. This is about, this is on page 71. And at this point in the story, Wren has stolen a book, a copy of The Deerslayer by James Fenimore Cooper. And he's never read anything except for the Bible or the lives of the saints. And so this is the first time he's reading 
true fiction. As he entered the story, hemlocks and pine trees soared overhead. A lake spread out before him like a mirror reflecting the sky, and the sound of a rifle shot boomed in his ears. Wren made his way through the dense forest with Deerslayer, chopping down trees and turning them into canoes, hunting and fishing and saving Indian maidens. There was an ambush, and Deerslayer shot a native down and was given a new name for doing so, Hawkeye, from the very man he'd killed. This was better than histories or psalms, better even than the lives of the saints. At times, Wren felt like he was reading fragments of his own dreams, reassembled into words that pulled at his heart, as if there were a string tied somewhere inside his chest that ran down into the book and attached itself to the characters, drawing him through the pages. The boy read and read and read and read until his eyes burned and the candle went out, and even then, in the darkness, he could still see Deerslayer, pushing his way through the thick leaves, sighting his mark, raising his long, thin rifle to his shoulder, and firing. And so was that something you worked on a long time, or why did you pick that? I guess I picked that section because I was trying to capture my own feeling of reading and how exciting and important it was and transformative it could be. So I kept going through that scene a lot to try to get it as close to my own experience. It's a part of the book that other people have mentioned to me a lot, that when they read it, they recognize their own feelings. And where do you write? I write sort of wherever I can, but mostly either in my apartment in Brooklyn or at this place called Brooklyn Creative League, which is a shared office space that's close by. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? You know, between all my various jobs, which is being a writer, uh, being an editor, being a teacher, writing and that literary world has pretty much infiltrated every single aspect of my life, no matter what it is. But I take breaks by walking my dog, going for long walks. Um, I love the beach and swimming. And who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to two fellow writers that I met in graduate school, Helen Ellis and Anne Napolitano. They're my first readers. We started off actually in a writing class of Danny Shapiro's, and none of us had ever published anything. And over the years, we've all slowly... You know, we've all published books and moved on in our careers, but I trust them both uh, to be brutally honest with me when something isn't working or not. So they're my sort of safe place that I go to first. How have you dealt with rejection? You know, also working in publishing, I, I've had an easier time with rejection knowing the other side of the desk. And I learned very quickly that it really has nothing to do with me. Oftentimes, I mean, it, it has to do with my skill level, certainly, and I worked hard to bring that skill level up. But I learned, you know, when a, when an editor is going through hundreds of stories a day, you know, they could have just like had a bad conversation with their boyfriend or girlfriend and just like reject the next 10 stories for no reason whatsoever. It's, it's a crapshoot. And that business side of things, you know, you really have to completely learn how to divorce your emotions from it as much as you can. So I know it's hard because, 
even when you do get rejected, you still feel the pain. But find a place to put that bad mojo and just send it out to 10 more places. And what is your favorite word? You know, uh, this was really hard. I don't know if I have a favorite word, but as soon as I saw that question, the word that popped into my mind was zygote. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Hannah Tinty, author of the novel The Good Thief. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing, and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.